Don't let a system of control define what the strengths are for you personally or professionally. If you are, again, an incredibly high, if, if you're somebody who cries in the office, I love you. Like, I'm so okay with that. I will make space for you to do that. You can come in my office and do it if you want to. The workplace just needs to be inherently human. One of the biggest misdirects we have in business is the trying to form everyone into a clearly antiquated model of what a successful executive looks like. Hey there, this is Ben. Thanks for tuning in to Lead the Team. Before we jump in, we just broke into the top 2% of all podcasts globally, and that's largely due to the support of listeners just like you. I invite you to subscribe so you're notified when we release a new episode and also leave a quick review. Welcome back to Lead the Team with number one best-selling author and in-demand corporate trainer, Ben Fanning. On this podcast, the world's most innovative senior leaders share their top success strategies to motivate your direct reports, cultivate your top leaders, and accelerate your career. Let's get started. Here's Ben. Lead the Team Nation, welcome back. Today I have for you Christy Vandenbosch, who is the President U.S. of Oliver. She's also served in senior leadership roles over at Revlon, Accenture Song, Publicist, and TBWA Shiate. She's also a frequent conference speaker on agency in-housing and outsourcing strategies and the influence of emerging technology on consumer behavior and organizational design. Now, Oliver, if you're not familiar with it, is focused on building the best teams in the world for the world's best brands, and they are the unrivaled expert in designing and operating in-house agencies. Oliver's North America team was also named to Adweek's fastest growing agencies in 2020, 2021, and 2022. Christy, welcome to Lead the Team. Hi, thank you. It's so nice to be here. So although you've served as CEO of companies and you're currently the president of a great organization, I've read that you still sweat the small stuff. Now, to me, this sounds counterintuitive to being at the top level because it seems like top leaders are thinking about being strategic and whatnot. Why is it so important for leaders, even the top leaders, to sweat the small stuff? I think when you achieve a certain level of seniority in a company, you start to think your job is to delegate things. And yes, it is to bring up the people underneath you and give them all the skills that they need to be successful when they become you. But mm -hmm. it's really funny how Every detail of, and I'll use a new business pitch as an example, because it's one of the places where in agencies we're really on stage and everything does matter so profoundly. Like if the deck isn't perfect, like it's not a good meeting. If the room, like someone drops their luggage in a coat in the corner, it looks bad. Like I think about all of those things and mm -hmm. I don't think I could even stop if I wanted to. And I would never assume that it's someone else's job to do that. But just again, controlling, mm -hmm. controlling what you can control is a good thing. Okay. So focusing on, controlling what you can control, even the small things. How in an executive space do you think about, well, I need to be, I would think, you know, to me, I, I tend to go to the details too a lot of times, but sometimes I feel like it's a trap because I'm thinking, man, I should be thinking more strategically. Or like you say, I should be delegating. How do you walk that line between delegating what you need to be delegating versus thinking about, you know, vision setting, and more of these abstract things that are usually yeah, charged really to top leader. A cautionary tale for this because I don't do that particularly well. I I don't I don't know. I think that the um 
the ability to to stay connected to the small stuff while still thinking about the big stuff is, I guess, mm. one of the great challenges most leaders do face. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think that they're mutually exclusive, though. I don't think you leave one behind just because you started to focus on the other. And I think that that is probably the best example to set for the people who are coming up behind you is to have that ability to recognize that everything does matter. And there is no sort of shortcuts to getting to great. And you will, in fact, have to, again, make sure that the fonts and the deck look perfect before you actually present it to a client. In your intro, we talked about this whole idea of in-housing marketing agencies. So a lot of times people will contract, they need marketing support, they contract externally, right? They sort of give that work to a different organization. Your company uh, takes a different approach and sort of builds this capability, it sounds like, within the organization. What's it been like for you going from organizations like Revlon, I mean, that that are really high-profile brands, to a company like Oliver, who is more sort of behind the scenes? It's um, a little bit humbling sometimes, but the business model is so smart and so good. And I feel like it solved, you know, decades of my career feeling somewhat compromised. So the majority of my life has been in big holding company agencies. And it's a very hard business to be in. The pressures on leadership in those companies are is exhausting. Mm-hmm. The um, the value destruction that's happened over the decades, again, has been really difficult for people who have embraced advertising as sort of their life's calling, which I would argue I had done. And the company I actually was working for was being acquired by Accenture Song. I never worked inside the Accenture business properly. But I had this call from a recruiter. Um, and it was interesting because I'd never really thought about going to the brand or or what we refer to as the client side in the agency business. And so I'm preparing to go into Accenture because I'm like, I can be an Accenture consultant. That seems like a cool job. And I got a call and, and someone asked if I would consider um, interviewing for a job at Revlon. And I'm like, I will take that meeting. And it was the first time I'd ever gone to that side of the business. And it was so fascinating in that I had taken on one of these titles as like a global transformation, something, something like one of those jobs that you absolutely cannot do because it's impossible. But it became really clear after I joined that what the best thing I could do for them was to build them an in-house agency capability. And so I focused exclusively on that. And it was really interesting to me in that I could see suddenly how valuable it was to have all of those resources and thinking really in close to the heart of the business. But in building it as part of the business, we became another department. So we were like the IT department, and then there's the advertising agency department. And people were like mad at each other all the time. It was not a, <laughs> like all the things that were magical and special about being an advertising Everyone's agency. Everyone's listening. We're like, yes, we all understand the infighting between silos, or some people yeah. call them functions inside companies, marketing and finance, and everybody's yeah. sort of fighting for resources. The yeah. marketers, marketers were positive because they'd worked with agencies their entire careers that, you know, like someone's going to work until 10 o'clock tonight. So it's going to be the agency people. And I'm like, but they're your colleagues and you're going home at five o'clock and they're probably going home at five o'clock too. Cause again, a whole different world on the, on the inside the business side. But what became really interesting is when I left Revlon, I had never heard of Oliver before and most people will not have. And there's a reason specifically for that, but the, the model made so much sense for me because it, again, it, it allowed our clients to put in capability, again, really close in in their business, react really quickly to be really nimble to see the problems that are are never written for an agency brief and to react to them. Hmm. And so I I often will say like, when you see a big successful in-house agency at a major CPG brand or any Fortune 100 brand, it's usually us. And we will get renamed by the client. So we go into their organization, we become part of their organization, we behave like we're part of their organization. 
Um, but, and they will call us something. So if you're inside Unilever and you hear of the, the in-house agency, U Studio, it's actually us. And we operate as though we are them. We have all the service and all the, the, the nature of what the word agency implies when we're inside their organization, but they treat us like that we're their colleagues. Wow. Yeah. It's so, really Dave, cool. so that to me, that that's got to be really challenging though, because you've got your own Oliver culture. Yeah. Probably that that you've established, but that doesn't necessarily always translate to what life in a Fortune 50 is going to be like. Not at all. And, and this was, I think, one of the most interesting learnings of COVID. So I joined three months before we went in, inside, like when everyone like left and went back to their homes and like didn't leave for three years. Um, so I didn't have a lot of time to really get the sort of culture that was Oliver sort of understood. And it didn't necessarily have a specific mm -hmm. Oliver culture. It was like, if you were in a client's business, that was your organization. You didn't even necessarily interact with a lot of the other business people in Oliver because you sat inside your client. And when we went inside for COVID, we had to behave differently. And I had this moment where it was like, oh, is our entire mm -hmm. model defunct now because we're based on in-housing and like ain't nobody in-house anymore. And I realized it really was about being intimate with the business in a way that was different than external agencies were. So we started to behave as an organization much more um, in in taking care of our culture. As an, we, we often will talk about, like you have dual passports. You have a passport to your client, and there's expected behaviors and culture and things that you need to know about being a part, a citizen of that country. And there are things you need to know about being part of Oliver. And I think we we did so much good work during COVID on understanding what it was that people joined when they joined us. And it wasn't just about joining their client organization, that we had to bring something really important and substantial and meaningful to the, the table. And I think we've done really good work on that part. Like I, I'm proud of how we take care of our people. How I'll give you an example. So the timing was, I can't even explain it, not coincidental, not fortuitous, not any good word. Um, but when George Floyd was murdered in Minneapolis and we went inside for COVID at almost the same time, um, there was a lot of interesting soul searching that went on in my own organization. And I will talk all the way up to the leadership, our founder, Simon Martin, who's based in London. And he had a lot of conversations with our head of DEI. And he walked away from this knowledge. And again, it's different to watch what happens in the United States from Europe. You have a sense that you know issues are not dissimilar, but they're also very unique to the United States in many ways. And so he really walked away from his conversations wanting to do nothing more than to leave Oliver with the legacy of being an actively anti-racist company. So a lot of the work that we did over the coming, you know, the next three years and still to this day and continue to do and will continue to do forever is about how we become a truly inclusive organization. And I've been in lots of companies where it's a department or it's a thing or there's a, you know, someone makes a video or they do a post during, you know, someone's month. And it is so different for us in how we live and breathe that particular characteristic. Like that is one of the cornerstones of our culture. Wow. Yeah. So. Thinking about, I got a lot of questions come to mind, but one is sort of advancing that conversation to the next step is you have listeners out there who probably don't have an in-house agency, yeah. uh, but they maybe, maybe they're thinking about that or maybe in not just in market, maybe it's finance or maybe it's other parts of the organization. What do you think are the questions that they need to be asking themselves on the decision to is what's the word? Outsource, insource, 
via outsourced outsource in housing outsourced in housing what is it what what are the questions that they should be asking or thinking about if they're making well, i have this conversation obviously with prospective clients all the time and it always starts with this it's like you guys are the best manufacturer of cat food in the entire world like yay you um have you ever run an ad agency before and of course, the answer is typically no. And you can bring in someone that has run ad agencies before, and you will wind up building out something dissimilar to what I did inside Revlon. And it has all of these natural limitations to it. Depending upon how big you can build a thing, um, you will have a place where people can't progress any further in their careers. If you think about external agencies, like there's always a way to get promoted into a new job or a new client or a new opportunity. And so mm-hmm. you have career pathing. If you are part of it, let's just say a 15 person in-house team inside a major company, you're kind of at a, like you're ready to become a creative director, but there's already a creative director. And so now you have to leave. And so it has a natural sort of um, end date to its mm. the, the composition of its team. Not necessarily a bad thing, but just something to be aware of. So there's not a place for people to rotate in and out of, which is, again, something that we can do for them. Um, I also ask them to think really seriously about what brings the business value. And so the the fact that you always worked with an outside agency and you sort of know what they do, you immediately think that that's the kind of work that you're trying to bring internally. And it's not necessarily the kind of work you're trying to bring internally. I think even the marketing landscape has changed so dramatically over the last decade. The kinds of stuff that brands need to make to be successful in the world are dramatically different than they were 10 years ago. And so often the kinds of things that we'll build inside with a client and we go through a discovery process together to sort of get to what this answer is, you know, it'll be things like, you need to be amazing at e-commerce and frankly, you're not. So how, how are we going to create the thousands and thousands and thousands of things you need to be great at that? And it's all kinds of very different work than you might've ever done with an external agency before. You need to be amazing at social. If you're not amazing at social, like you're not, are you even, are you even a marketer? And again, not something you can always easily outsource to Mm -hmm. another agency. And so a lot of the things we'll build inside are by their nature, the kinds of services that should sit in close to the business that aren't well service necessarily by an external agency partner Mm -hmm. anyway. And I I often like that external agency partners are some of my closest allies in the business as we sort of bring any brand to life because they still exist. There's not like a reason for them to not exist in this ecosystem. They just, they focus on the things that they're amazing at and we focus on the things that we're amazing at. And we just decide together sort of with the clients what those swim lanes will be and are really respectful of them. Some great examples there. Uh, is the word that came to mind for me are innate is like enabling support for your business that you need. Like you, like you mentioned social, it's hard to give that to people who were doing social for social media stuff for 10 different companies. And you're expecting that your person that's sitting in his office far away, they're really just paying attention to your account and they're getting to know your people and your culture. So what's going out is truly represented, but if they're, physically on site or they're remote nearby or they're sort of connected in, you're going to get a completely different quality product and service than you would otherwise. That that really resonated. And I also thought it was interesting, which you, and I did not even think about this until you mentioned it. Think about those parts of your company where you need expertise, but you don't really have a great career progression path for them. Like you don't, you know, I think you were talking about that from the standpoint of they're not necessarily going to be able to be, maybe you don't need uh, an executive vice president or, or director of this function. Likely but, not. But a great way to get that level of talent is by the kind of approach that Oliver's doing, where you can get those people 
in at that level. And they may eventually rotate to a different account because there's a bigger opportunity for them to grow, but at least you've had them for a while and, and they're going to be taken care of in the process. I mean, that I don't know if it words in your mouth, but no, that's, no, what, that, that, that's what that was, resonated with me. Yeah, that was actually something I think that came out of COVID as well. We had two large clients. One was Marriott and one was WestJet, an airline out of Vancouver, Canada. And they basically, their business disappeared overnight. And they called us and they're like, we don't want to lose our team. Like, can you furlough them? Like, what can you do? And we had other clients that were like, oh, shoot, like the entire world has gone in-house e-commerce, by way of example, has now exploded. And we don't feel like we were super ready for it. We literally took all of the people we had on a hotel and an airline brand and made them expert in CPG e-commerce. And that was the first time I think we realized the power of being able to do these horizontal movements around and amongst our clients, because we now had developed a significant enough base of very different industries and businesses that we could do that. And so suddenly mobility within our company was much more a policy than it had been prior. Very, very cool. And from a leadership perspective, reduces your census count. So reduce your fixed cost as a leader. Yeah. We don't don't have much overhead. There's, There's very few people who you would put into the bucket of like your overhead leadership stuff. Like it's super lean, which is again, another reason why everyone focuses on everything. Yeah. And even the small stuff is because there aren't really any other people, other people to do it. <laughs> and that's okay. Well, it's, so I, I, years ago, uh, I worked for some brands, not, not in the advertising space or bad, like Honeywell and sports authority mm-hmm. and at Russell athletic. And there was a lot of this conversation around distribution and warehousing, like back in the day where, they were in, this is a sort of a different industry, but they were bringing people on site to work in the, in like within the walls of their technology centers or manufacturing, but they're actually being trained and paid to sort of maintain through uh, a third party. And that third party could move people around. Yeah. You would get experts, you know, it, it really, uh, I think it worked out pretty well. But it's complicated if you don't communicate well with the company. And that's one of the that's one of the stories that I remember is some leaders were so communicative with the third parties that they were working with sort from an from a from the from this process, and some weren't. And the ones that did communicate were the ones that had success in that environment. I, I agree that that is an absolute critical aspect. One of the things when we go into an organization and build capability with them, is ask them to appoint someone whose job it will be to make sure this thing is successful. So it is a an agency leader for all intents and purposes. And, and often in, in a lot of our clients' companies, it is a path to a very big job when you come out of the other end of that because you've proven you can run a PL, you can run a large group of people and, and successfully lead them internally. And so all of the employees in that agency are technically mine, but their leader is someone who sits on the client side and her or his KPIs are completely attached to the success of that organization that we build together. Driving accountability yeah. across both groups. I love that. Now, I mentioned in the intro that you uh, often speak at conferences and you speak yeah. on leadership. <laughs> but I, but I was I was when I ran across this line of you speak about leadership oftentimes from a as a cautionary as a cautionary tale. 100%. So what do you mean? So are you trying to scare people off from leading? uh, I'm trying to help them not make the same mistakes that I have. No, I'm like the first person to volunteer. Like when we get the interns in the summer, I'm like, I want to talk to the interns. Okay. And I, I feel like being 
relatively good at my job for a relatively long period of time. I've stepped on almost every landmine that you can step on. And so I can help people to understand the things that are going to happen to them and to put them into a frame of reference that they can process. Because you're going to be surprised the first time you lose a job that you love. It's going to hurt. So, and you're not going to understand why, but it's going to happen. And it's not about you. You are going to be betrayed by somebody in work and it's going to be incredibly painful, but it does not define you. And so I do a lot of the like things that have happened to me in my career stories. I will literally tell stories for days. What's your favorite one? Oh God. Um, Literally couldn't and wouldn't repeat it on here, but I've got, I've got lots of them. I give them good advice about things. You know, don't be the last person to leave the holiday party, like good things that you should know. I wish I was. There's a story there. (laughs) <laughs> the last one there's, there's a small the story and it's not about me fortunately but it is a, a good cautionary tale so when i worked inside shy day in los angeles i sat my office was where a lot of the people who ran the admin for the building were and whenever we had a holiday party there was always a photographer that would roam around to take candid pictures of people at the holiday party oh boy and the photos it was when like a little bit pre-digital and so the photos would come over Thank as goodness and they would go to the girls who had planned the party. And so we would all get together to go through the photo. Fu- and it was such a like, oh, my God, what are those two people doing together? And why is her shirt above her head? Like, it was such a good. <laughs> and then those would be like taken out before they were, you know, distributed for common consumption. But Right. But these days, replay that in social media. Some of oh, them might, Too late. might leak out. So, yeah, some great. It's a great thing that the business holiday party or the office company holiday party is not like the holiday party you're going to have with your buddies Good later. Remember. Yep. Different Good mindset. Different yeah. mindset. Okay. Oh, that's funny. So what's your advice for leaders who don't necessarily reflect the diversity of the company's employees? Oh, actually, I love that question. So, and and this is a little bit of an Oliver story and a little bit of a me story um, in that our focus as an organization is so strongly on our DEI efforts. And yet our leadership doesn't necessarily reflect the diversity of our organization or the organization we want to be. And there are things that are visibly diverse and like invisibly diverse. And Mm -hmm. recently I had an opportunity to work with, so we have an agency that sits inside the agency that's called InCrowd, and it is serving our people of color, primarily the black audience. And we did some work for a client that was actually not on, it, it was not an authentic experience and it was done by a team in London, not that that makes any difference, but it was not, it, it was meant for black American men and it did not in any way uh, reflect their authentic experience. And so to bring in that group and recognize that my job was to literally shut up uh, was one of those really great moments of how to be a leader by just not leading sometimes because it's not your place. And so it was a really, I think, eye-opening way of understanding that to empower the generation that is coming up and to empower the people that have been disenfranchised over time, you have to have a consciousness about it for starters. You have to accept that it is going to change the way that you lead. Hmm. Uh, I'm used to being the one that like, I can close a meeting. Like I, when, when decisions are ready to be made, I can make all the decisions and we will, we will get to the end of it. It is my job in some situations to absolutely not speak. And so again, a, a good a good lesson, I think, in many ways, definitely a lesson for me. When I was uh, at an earlier agency, I worked with a woman who I would call um, not visibly diverse. So in our ERG landscape, employee resource group landscape, there are all sorts of um, groups that come together around different things. And the neurodiversity is one that I think is a really interesting emerging area for nurse to understand. And so she would be considered 
um, neurodiverse. So I, I walk into the bathroom at our office and she's standing there and she's crying. And she's a very uh, a quirky girl. And so I immediately do what I would do anyone standing in the bathroom crying. And I go and I put my arms around her and she is as stiff as board. Like this is not something she's comfortable with clearly is like physical contact and emotional intimacy and any of this stuff. And I over-index on all of it. So I did what I do and she did what she did. And she says, I'm like, tell me what's wrong. And I, I swear to God, she said, my mom died. And I'm like, oh, fuck, like we got a thing. And so I hold on to her and she eventually, like, I can feel her like hands just sort of like creeping around me a little bit, a little bit, a little bit until she's sort of hugging me back. And we stand there and she cries. And it, it's like this for, I'm going to say like a really almost weirdly long period of time, like, like a solid 10 minutes. Like people come and go in the bathroom by us and we just start standing there. We're mm. just holding on to each other. And at one point in time, she has this moment where she stops crying and she said, this feels really good. And I'm like, Okay, good. That was that was good. That I, I put you in a really awkwardly uncomfortable position because I operate from this place of over empathy, and you do not clearly share that thing with me. Probably shouldn't have done that, and yet for whatever magical reason in that moment, it worked. By the way, her mom had not died. Spoiler alert: um, it was a dog, and not that that's any less of a tragedy for people, and it was certainly one for her. Uh, it was just such an interesting awareness moment again for me to recognize that the things I see are not necessarily the things I need to be reacting to from a diversity perspective, because people operate in so many different ways and on so many different levels and to figure out how to interact with them in a way that is appropriate for them is, uh, you know, one of the great challenges we'll always have, especially when you can't see what the diversity is. Wow. The jobs of leaders just got 10 X harder. Yeah. Uh, but so yeah. good. Like this is why we keep learning every day. Right. It is a growth journey and kudos to you for reflecting on that moment. It sounds like it was such a, it was such an interesting moment. You probably couldn't help reflect on what was it all about, <laughs> but it, it does go to show um, there are more levels to diversity than just race yeah. and what we can physically see. And you mentioned neurodiversity um, and it's just important that I think leaders be open to yeah. what's happening and fight that kind of conversation. I've um, watched, this is a, it's another sort of side anecdote, but mm -hmm. I have a former colleague who has joined a media organization that is very conservative is I guess the term that I'll use. And he's become kind of a public figure now as a, a mouthpiece for rejecting DEI efforts and organizations as some sort of a, a trap, a thing that, you know, we, we've now focused so much on building woke culture that I, I don't even know what his negative take on it is, but he's got one. And he, he promotes it quite actively on a lot of social media. And it's like, I don't understand how you are threatened by something that is clearly so grounded in good. Like, how can you even find the thing that causes you anxiety or that you want to like agitate against in something that is so clearly the right thing to do. But I, I, one of the things that you and I talked about earlier, um, the notion of systems of control, they sort of cause people, I think, to take positions like that um, to protect something that they're trying to protect. Want to boost your productivity and decision-making? Get vital insights from each episode delivered directly to your inbox a great resource whether you've listened to the episode or not. Go to benfanning.com slash insight. 
So leaders who don't reflect the diversity of its employees, it sounds like when you're in this situation, which, I mean, it could be male, female, it could be gender, it could be race, it could be neurodiversity. It sounds like with all these levels, there's always going to be some level. Every leader is going to be in this situation. Yeah. The only question is, do you have a playbook or do you have a couple of steps that you that you know to take? And so what's your advice for leaders who aren't really thinking about it from this perspective? Or maybe this is the first time that they're thinking about it. So this is going to be kind of a long answer and it's going to be a bit of a winding one, but it's it's both what we do and what we don't do. Um, I, I mentioned just now the notion of systems of control. The thing that we don't fully and always understand, and again, I've been a woman in business for a really long time. I've gone through all kinds of weird things. Like everyone's got a me too story. I've got a hundred of them. Like it, it is um, something that we've come to accept, acknowledge, and eventually reject as part of the work culture. I didn't really realize this, I think, until I started to do the work around anti-racism. And I read the opening introduction to the new Jim Crow, and it talked about systems of power and systems of control. And it was so eye-opening to me in so many ways about how things, people, organizations protect themselves from being open to diversity, to actually making a path for others to succeed because they're protecting something. And so you don't even know when I, when I use the term like a system of control, you don't even know necessarily who it is. And I, forgive me for saying it's often white men, but it's often white men um, where they've had these positions of authority and they protect them by distracting other groups with often misinformation or misguided um, opinions about what is keeping them from joining the system of control or being in control generally. And I, I find this with women all the time. And this is one of the, another thing I'll talk to the interns mm -hmm. about. So we are often told things like we apologize too much or we're too outspoken or we're not outspoken enough or we take up too much space in the room or we don't take up enough. Like there's, there's all of these reasons that women do not hit the C-suite. And I have to remind the young woman in our organization that that is a ruse. That is a, a mis direct in the mm. magician term. Mm -hmm. a, system is, a system of control is telling you that what your problem is, is your problem for starters. And it is your issue. And it is because you are too noisy or you're too whatever. Um, when actually the issue is that they've created policies and, and protection for the system of control that by distracting you by this thing where you think like, oh, if I just stopped apologizing or didn't end my sentences with a yeah. question mark, I would actually be in the C-suite, but the C-suite is protecting itself. So it gives you these, it's almost like a, a gaslighting thing where they will gaslight you about the things that are actually your problem when that is not your problem at all. They've actually created policies and systems to keep you from being in those positions. And so that, in fact, is um, the, the most important thing that I want to teach the people coming up is that we do not try to fix things that the system of power tells us is our problem because it is not our problem. We break the system of power. Mm. Wow. A real call to action. I've got opinions. <laughs> well, is it is is we got we we talked about I have an 11 year old daughter and we took her to see the chicks, formerly the, the uh, Dixie chicks. And they have not their new album, the first album in forever that came out this year. I mean, it might've been the first album in 10 to 15 years. It's called Gaslighter. And so we got to talk, and it's a lot about exactly, a lot, a lot of that album is talking about 
that only means it's relationships and gaslighting and whatnot. But we got to talk about that and what that is as it relates to the system. Yeah. And um, it's easy in those situations to internalize something and almost perceive it's a carrot. Well, if I just fix this on my annual review. Um, it's my it's my problem that I say I'm sorry too much. Like imagine right. if someone has now directed yeah. you to mm-hmm. strike that from your language. Like I apologize all the time. I apologize because I interrupt. I've done it to you 10,000 times in just the 20 minutes we've been talking. Um, and I think it is actually one of the greatest strengths that you can show is recognizing that you are being either you know, if you're being rude to someone by interrupting, you are um, disagreeing with them. It's not wrong to say that you're sorry when you disagree with someone. Like it is a strength, not a weakness. And so the more it gets characterized as the reason that you are not, again, hitting the C-suite is just one of those fantastic misdirects that takes what makes especially women so strong in leadership positions and it denigrates it. It actually causes it to be perceived by us as a weakness. Our high natural empathy, like that off the charts thing that we do, like what a great trait in leaders. And the system of control tries to tell us that that's actually our problem, mm-hmm. not our strength. And really the system of control too could benefit from it. Oh yeah. It's not like the, I, the, I've the, it's the mentality of abundance of, hey, if we have if we invite this this uh into our fold, it will strengthen us yeah. versus it's going to take away things from us. It's a really important, I think it's important for every li- every listener to listen to this to really hear what Christy's saying because um sometimes it can feel like you're under attack as a leader or you might lose power you might lose control if you're empowering your employees and but usually what happens is uh it creates a strengthened organization that's more nimble that's more open that's more agile yeah as a leadership as a leader in that position where you are bringing those skills into the organization and making that be a way of working you're, you're going to be attacked for it. And you will, in fact, have to sit back and recognize why. And again, it's not because your natural high EQ is a weakness, because assuredly it is not. It is because it is threatening to someone. And so it, there's no leader that terrifies me more than a brilliant sociopath. And they run lots of companies. They run lots of technology companies, not to mention any names, where you have someone that is so unarguably brilliant, mm-hmm. but is so like sociopathically non-EQ, like they're just, they're all the IQ side of it and literally have no emotional value that they bring to the organization. And they're the most dangerous companies in the world. It, it, it is, they're, they're, they're the leaders that actually frighten me. What, so what's your advice for leaders who think about what you just said? And they're like, you know what? That might be my company. <laughs> it, might, it might be my boss. Yeah. What's your I, advice I mean, for them? go find a new company and and build it the way you want it to be. I, I watch really wonderful organizations and Goldman Sachs is um, one of them where to invest in an organization in their investment banking division, you have to have diversity on your board of directors. You have to have now at least two women. And that is like two from the top of a system of control, a very historically conservative system of control to say that this is really important to what makes companies successful. Because statistically, like it is a proven data point that when you run organizations with diversity at the leadership level, you are a more successful organization. You you perform better on Wall Street. You perform better with your employee satisfaction. Like you are a better citizen as a corporation when you do that. And so again, you have people just trying to protect the status quo and making sure that they continue to 
have these jobs, titles, and and controlling interests until they retire, and hopefully the next generation takes over and doesn't do that. Should the organization adapt to the leader, or should the leader adapt to the organization? I think leaders have to adapt to the organization more now more than ever. I think you had these very famous, you know, Jack Welchian sort of leaders where their philosophy became so much the philosophy of the company, you couldn't really extract one from the other. GE was Jack Welch, Jack Welch was GE. And the, the idiosyncrasies that were built into the business were his idiosyncrasies, the way that they promoted and reorganized and cut staff. Like it was, it was very much him. I think we have come as a culture to really value those, the diversity again in our organizations and recognize it is not about with all due respect, the white guy at the top, making the decisions for how an organization functions strategically. Yes. Culturally. No, like you come in and you understand the people that are making you successful because it's not Jack Welch's company. It wasn't Jack Welch's company. Um, It was the one of, you know, tens of thousands of people who worked for GE. And so I I think because of, I, I feel like we're at this really major inflection point where our ability to embrace the diversity of thought and uh, and a diversity of everything that sits in our organizations is what makes us strong and great. The command and control environment is a thing of the past. And again, all the things that we learned from COVID even, how we, like, I'm sorry, jump all over the place, but an organization that is like very much about back to work. There are two reasons for that. One of which is I need to see you because I don't believe you're working if I don't see you, which is your command and control sort of Mm -hmm. variant on that. The other is, you know, I believe that you will manage your time incredibly well. And I don't need to see you to do that. And I know that your productivity is high and I know that you will be successful wherever you live. That divergence of historical command and control behaviors, like if I can't see you, I don't know that you're working to, I believe that you are going to be an incredibly productive person when you actually have balance in your life and you can manage your time effectively. Like that is where the future lies. We 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 had it forced upon us, but it caused a major shift in the way that we think about how people do work, where they do work and why they do work. Hmm. Yes. Uh, COVID basically put a huge wrench in the command and control leadership yeah. because you. <laughs> it's hard to... Even though some companies went right into uh, this technology, like, like surveillance technology, to measure, you know, how long their people are online and keystrokes and all that, yeah. even that wasn't effective for a lot of organizations uh, because ultimately hours worked and value add and productivity don't always sync up. Yeah, and I did my if someone's best looking busy doesn't yeah. mean that they're productive. So learning how to lead in this new world with a lot of the techniques and strategies that you just mentioned, I think are very valuable for leaders. Now, starting to put the cherry on top of this awesome interview, Christy, what are three success strategies that every employee needs to understand right now? That's a good question. I wish I'd actually prepared for it, but I will riff because <laughs> I do not have issues with that. Um, in terms of what employees need to do now, again, in this literally never seen before environment of working in a distributed fashion in not necessarily being with your boss or being seen in a position to be, 
you know, the next person to climb the ladder because you did really well in a meeting with a bunch of people and everyone saw it. That doesn't happen anymore. The natural thing that used to happen so effortlessly when we lived in corporations together, you have to literally merchandise yourself now. And I think that that's hard for people that are naturally humble and who don't like to call attention to themselves and just assume that people will notice if they do a good job. You do have to merchandise yourself. And that's, I'm going to use a gender stereotypical thing. It's harder for women. Like we don't naturally want to promote ourselves and we need to, and, or we need to make sure that we build relationships with leadership where they will actually promote us. So I think that that becomes a really important strategy for um, people in the workplace to recognize that in a newly distributed, possibly remote work environment to be successful, you are going to have to promote the work that you do. I think the other thing Another thing is, again, to recognize, and I'll go back to the diversity issue again, is to actively work to create an environment like that. When when, when we interview people, we often use uh, the term, like, are you a fit? Fit is a inherently racist term. It is, do you look like me? And it, it is not necessarily meant to be that, but it is. And so striking language from <clears throat> our vocabulary and the way that we build organizations to take out the often unconscious bias that we put into our decision-making is another thing that's really going to be important going forward. How do you make sure the thing that you are building is not a bunch of people that look like you, act like you, and think like you? Because your company will be stronger if you focus on that. And it takes a lot of education, self-reflection, learning, doing the work to understand how to get to building diversity in your company. And that is the biggest and most important investment that you can make. And I think probably the last thing is, again, to go back to the notion of don't let a system of control define what the strengths are for you personally or professionally. If you are, again, an incredibly high, if if you're somebody who cries in the office, I love you. Like, I'm so okay with that. I will make space for you to do that. You can come in my office and do it if you want to. Um, These are traits that are so inherently human and the workplace just needs to be inherently human. And so to let anyone gaslight you into believing that your personal traits are in fact weaknesses when they are your greatest strengths, like be either, either defend them as your strengths, create organizations that value them as strengths and, or go find an organization that actually values it. Cause that I think is um, one of the biggest misdirects we have in business is the trying to form everyone into a clearly antiquated model of what a successful executive looks like. Great place to wrap that up. Number three, (laughs) hit me, hit me hard. Um, And I love that example. It sounds like creating that, you know, really leadership is about vision and, and these things, but we often forget it's about creating the culture, the space, for your team to operate as themselves in a highly productive way and a place where if you feel like crying, you can go into the president's office and do it. hundred percent. Wow. Yeah. Thanks, Christy. It was such a pleasure, Ben. I so enjoyed talking to you. If you're an executive at a crossroads in your career and thinking about quitting, do this before you do anything else. Head over to benfanning.com slash quit to receive a free signed copy of my number one best-selling book, The Quit Alternative, The Blueprint for Creating the Job You Love Without Quitting. You'll learn the critical questions you must answer 
before you make such an impactful decision. Go to benfanning.com slash quit to get this valuable resource for just the cost of shipping. Ben Fanning is a number one best-selling author, Inc. Magazine columnist, and CEO of the Fanning Group, an international consultancy and corporate training company. To learn how they can help your organization, go to benfanning.com.